Amen. Well, Harvest, uh, grab your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. We are at the coming into the cross, the resurrection. And uh, this is, as Joe was talking about, this is like pinnacle time for us as followers of Christ. And, and yet, I would kind of in that, I want to ask the question, do we, really, do we really understand what it means to make big of the cross? What does it mean to make big of the cross? Is it just about two big sticks of wood and kind of a very sentimental, important time in, in history and in Bible history? Or is it much more than that? And what is that? How do we handle that? How do we grab that? I, I put all that on the table because it was actually this week in our small group. Our small group is going through a book called by C.J. Mahaney called Worldliness, Resisting the Seduction of a Falling World. We just finished the book Humility and then coming into this one. Some of the small groups are in this one as well. And at the end of the chapter, it says these, uh, here's just some random sentences that give you a feel for where this is going. Uh, he says, the antidote to worldliness is the cross of Jesus Christ. He then says another sentence, when someone sets his affections upon the cross and the love of Christ, he crucifies the world as a dead and undesirable thing. Another sentence, uh, then crowd out worldliness by filling your affections with the cross of Christ. And a fourth one, Uh, What should consume our thoughts and affections is not resisting worldliness, but the glory and grace of God revealed at the cross. Here we have this statement, and and we were all sitting around together as a small group, and we're like, yeah, that's really true. And and I asked the question, I said, okay, uh, are any of you wondering, like, what does that really look like to do? It's a good thing to say, and it's a good thing I think we would agree with, but what does that look like? Make much of the cross. Set your affections on the cross. What what in the world is that all about? Well, as we were talking in our small group, we have a hard time grabbing a hold of that. And what really is all going on there? What really is it all about? We're going to go there today. We're going to kind of jump into the text and then pull a bit back. Here's what I've been doing with us in the last uh, few Sundays. I've been having us kind of take this perspective of what it means to look into the eyes of Christ. And we've talked about how in chapter 14 were some different people looking into the eyes of Christ. Here were some of, the, some of them that we had referred to. Judas... When Judas looked into Jesus' eyes, Judas really saw opportunity for personal gain. In other words, he saw what Jesus could bring him. Then a Caiaphas, Caiaphas, the high priest, looked into Jesus' eyes and actually saw a personal threat, what Jesus would take away from him. Another was Caiaphas's cronies, kind of in the crowd. We're going to see some of them today as well. Uh, They looked into Jesus' eyes and really saw a hindrance. What Jesus would prevent them uh, or got in their way. By the way, are you processing this and thinking, this is how a lot of people today look at Christ? Uh, Jesus is an opportunity for me? Or Jesus just is going to take away things? Or uh, uh, Jesus is just going to get in my way of some of my things? 
Well, one of the others, as we talked about Peter, and we really camped there with Peter the one Sunday, when, G- when Peter looked into Jesus' eyes, he looked in and he saw his own unfathomable sin at his denials. But he also looked into Jesus' eyes and saw Jesus' unfathomable grace poured out to him. Do you see that? We talked about that. Well, today in chapter 15, we're going to pick up a few more people looking into Jesus' eyes. We're going to take a look at them, but I, I just want for you to know this, lay the groundwork. We're, we're going to take a look at them. We're going to see some people looking into his eyes and kind of similarly making some connections there. But where I'm really going is not there. We're going to spend a little bit of time there, and then we're actually going to spend uh, most of our time talking about what was behind Jesus' eyes, Okay. Lord, I pray as we dig into your word that you would just be all in it as you are. God, be here. Show us you, more of you. Help us to grab a hold of you. God, help me even now here. You know, this has been a cool week for me with this. I'm really amped up about it. And yet when I get so amped up, sometimes I have a hard time communicating what I'm amped up about. So would you just be here and we just rest in you and the grandness and the greatness of who you are? Um, because you are marvelous, right? Amen. Lord, here we go. All right, verse one, chapter 15. Right after Peter's third denial, and as soon as it was morning, remember all that happened through the night, all the cronies, all the sham trial, everything going on, the Lord's Supper happened the, the evening before. It's Friday morning. As soon as it, was, as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. So the whole council is all back together again. They hold this meeting, and, and out of it, they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to who? Pilate. Pilate's our next guy. So here we meet Pilate. Let me just tell you a little bit about this guy, Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman governor of Judea. Uh, he governed with absolute authority. He, at his hand, 24-7, had some 5,000 trained men that would do anything he called on at any moment in time. And he had that a power, and he had those people for the purpose of keeping Roman supremacy going uh, in his area. Uh, By the way, Pilate ruled quite ruthlessly. He was not the kind of guy you were like, I know, let's have Pilate over for dinner tonight. He was more like you wanted to stay away from him. He was ruthless in his rule. And yet from a Roman perspective, uh, um, um, maybe you wanted that. Pilate had some run-ins with both Rome. He also had some run-ins with his own constituency there. And frankly, he was annoyed with the people that he ruled as a governor. And we're going to see here, I think, what are some times where he antagonizes them. They're irritated by him, and he's irritated by them. And watch the politics play out in it. Things have not changed much. Chapter 15, verse 2. And Pilate asked Jesus, okay, they delivered him over to Pilate. So Jesus there, Jesus has been uh, beaten up pretty well. He has not been whipped, scourged to the point of within a hair's breadth of death yet. But he has been beaten up, all this kind of stuff. Verse 2, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? By the way, that's what he had heard, but I think he's also stating this question because here's one more guy 
early in the morning. It's probably like 5 a.m. in the morning. Uh, Pilate was known to be up very early because of the heat of the day. He would finish his day early, go golfing. I don't know what he would do. but uh, So he was up early, and there Jesus is with him, and it's kind of like, one more guy, one more guy. The whole thing, two million people, Passover's annoying the life out of him anyway. And he's like, okay, so are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. It's interesting, it's in Greek, it's two words. It's essentially, uh, you say. Uh, You say so. Um, And the chief priests accused him of many things. By the way, one of the things about Mark, Mark is not so into all the little details, all the little he met here, he met them. Herod's not even in any of this. Mark's just like, get at it. He puts some key people on, he's getting at it. The chief priests are accusing him. Verse four, Pilate again asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was what? Amazed. Pilate looks into Jesus' eyes and he's amazed. I think bewildered, stunned, befuddled. He's looking into his eyes and here's how it moves along. He says to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, "Uh, uh, you have said so. I love it. It's one more of a no answer answer. And we saw it with Caiaphas, where Jesus is essentially saying, what you said about me, got that? What you said about me, yeah, that I am. And he's putting words in his mouth, almost kind of bringing it, yeah, what you say, I am. By the way, I would note this, if you have a red letter edition copy of the Bible, where that's where all the words of Jesus are spoken, are in red letters, you do not see any more red letters until Jesus is on the cross. As far as what Mark tells us, this is the last thing Jesus says until he's hanging on the cross. The silence is stunning. But hold that thought, we'll get there. So then Pilate, after Peter, or after Jesus says, uh, you have said so, Pilate says, wait, 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 wait. Others are making, he's like, have you no answer to make? I mean, how many charges they bring to you and you are gonna say anything? Let's pause here for a second here. Because really, any normal person, you have right now the judge. You, you have the governor. You have the one that can sign the paper away and you're free. You've got him right here. And, and the governor is saying, why are you not pleading your case? I mean, I would think that would be the moment that any normal person put in a situation like Jesus is put in, he would start telling the story. Well, here's the deal. I am so not a threat to these guys. This whole thing is a sham. They shammed the trial. In fact, let me tell you, it was at midnight, not supposed to happen. I wasn't giving counsel what it's supposed to happen. And he could just go through and go through and go. They've broken the law again and again and again and again, Pilate. I am set up. Not a word. I would think any normal person would plead their case. Now, along with that, I would think maybe any lunatic would lie their case. (laughs) They would just be making up some kind of story. Well, there was a grill in my way, or there was, you know, this happened. It wasn't my fault. It was just shamming the process. He doesn't even do that. And what's so stunning about it is that Pilate is stunned by it. 
Dude, do you not understand? I have the ability to set you free and you're not gonna say a word? And Pilate's amazed. By the way, in this whole thing, the text doesn't tell us and so I need to acknowledge that. But I don't think this is the kind of thing that Jesus is before Pilate and Jesus is maybe looking at the floor or he's like looking up at the sky. When Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, uh, uh, you said so. I think there's an eye to eye going on here. And then Pilate's talking back to him. Are you not going to plead your, listen to me. Are you not going to plead your case? And he's silent. Those eyes of Jesus looking into this man. We get nowhere, any kind of sense that Jesus is squirming, that he's fidgety, that he's like feeling like he got a raw deal, that he's, that he's, that, that he's like nervous about what's going to happen, that it's like I've been shammed, or it's like this is just I got the bad side of the deal. We see none of that going on. Instead, I think what we see here is a humble confidence. What's going on behind those eyes, man? How could anyone do that? Well, that's Pilate. Pilate is amazed. Verse 6 and 7. And now at the feast, he used to, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called, what? Barabbas. Next character up, Barabbas. Uh, Mark just kind of gets right at it. He actually doesn't tell us that anything's happened here. He's setting the, the situation at hand. And he's telling us that every year Pilate would do this. He would release a prisoner. You know, there's this politics thing going on. Satisfy the people so they love you even though they annoy the life out of you. He's just trying to keep his job. There's a guy in prison called Barabbas. Who cares about Barabbas? Well, he's going to be showing up in the story here in just a second. We don't know a whole lot about Barabbas, but we know that he's a rebel. He's one of the rebels. He's been apparently part of some insurrection. Uh, We also know that he's uh, somehow, as the text leads to, he's committed murder in the insurrection. So somehow this is a bad dude. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time about Barabbas. But I will note this, by the way, over in Matthew, if you go and you see the account of Matthew, and there's some textual issues related with it, but uh, it's interesting that actually uh, uh, Barabbas' first name listed there is Jesus. I thought about spending time on that, but I'm not going to today. I'll make one note of it here in just a minute. But isn't that interesting? Who do you choose, Jesus or anti-Jesus? It's been the exact issue from the very beginning all the way to the very end. The picture is stunning with what's happening here. So Mark doesn't tell us that uh, whether Barabbas ever looked into Jesus' eyes But I think we could just all agree, you kind of know the rest of the story. We'll get to it here in just a second. But I think if we would go to Barabbas and go, hey, Barabbas, when you looked into Jesus' eyes, what did you see? And I think he would reply something like, uh, man, the dude saved me out of a bad predicament. I got my get-out-of-jail-free card, literally, right? 
That's kind of the way the story goes. Let's keep reading verse 8. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. By the way, I hope that you and others aren't in this room thinking that Jesus is a get-out-of-jail-free card. Only. I'm sorry. Let me go back to verse 8. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Oh, this is such a jab. He's got this crowd with the high priest, the chief priests are there. This is all going down with his cronies are there. And he's like, hey, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? I'm telling you, that was just like an in-your-face irritation, just going into him. And so we keep reading. And verse 10, for he had perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Listen, Pilate knew what was going on. He knew this was a sham. And so we go. Uh, verse 11, but, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Boy, there's some real poor religious leadership. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? <laughs> and they cried out again regarding Jesus crucify him. I just got to pause for one second. That is so barbaric. I mean, it's one thing just to say, no, put him in jail. But here there's this thing, they've been worked up to crucify him. Friends, the crucifixion process that takes place in there, would we see here in a moment that Jesus is sent out to be scourged? That process is so stunningly brutal. It was whipping to the point where the flesh was torn off to where you would not only see muscle and bone, but oftentimes it was known in history that the person that would go through this while they're heading out to Golgotha, because Christ and the three were not the only ones, who, the other two were the only ones who were crucified, but others who were going out were literally having some of their innards hanging out. Oh, and by the way, do understand that that whole thing was done naked? Naked, shredded, innards hanging out. And they said, do that to him. It's just stunning how absolutely barbaric and brutal this is. And they cried out, crucify him. Verse 14, and Pilate said to them, why? Isn't that interesting? Why? What evil has he done? Because he understood that evil people got this. But they shouted all the more what? So Pilate, wishing to keep his job, it's really the deal, released for them Barabbas because they chose the anti-Jesus. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The next characters we see are the crowd and the council. By the way, this crowd is most likely a croning crowd. This is not the general public that's been invited in. This is kind of the crony crowd, probably some who are at Caiaphas's house hours earlier and others, they're all there. The council uh, stirs them up to get them to call out uh, to crucify Christ. They go with it because they wanted to keep the system in place that, that they were flourishing under. So they choose Barabbas. 
Not choosing Jesus meant that they were making a choice, by the way. You do understand that in the whole big picture of what the reality from a biblical perspective is. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Not choosing Jesus Christ as your Savior is choosing to remain owned by the prince of the power of the air, Satan. No choice is a choice. Verse 16. So the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And Jesus did not say a word. Uh, Kind of the next characters here, uh, the death squad. I mean, the reality is, is these guys were trained death torturers. And the fact of the matter is they looked into Jesus' eyes and just saw one more person. They were running through the system of what they were trained to do. They were doing their job. That's the fact of the matter. And they were processing him through and uh, beating him up. This was just one more messed up Jewish guy that got caught either in some kind of... They didn't care. They just knew that this guy had been condemned to death and it was their job to put him to death. So the characters we have here in uh, the text we're covering today is Pilate, Barabbas, the crowd, the council, and the death squad. And it's interesting as you kind of read through it, there's commotion going on with all of them. Pilate and commotion, and you know, we don't even have in there about, Mark doesn't tell about his conversation with his wife, you know, some husbands, we need to listen to our wives. <laughs> we don't have about that, and... and uh, then you have in your Caiaphas in the crowd, there's just all this, you know, hell blue going on and just uh, activity. And, and you have Barabbas who's just like, bah. And then you have the death squad and they're in full action. We could spend a lot of time with all of them, um, but I'm just going to acknowledge them now. Leave them there because in all of the haracus going on, there is one that is nearly silent but for two words. And I am so intrigued by this one. How could anyone go through just the 20 verses that we read? How could anyone go through that and not fight back? Why would anyone do that in silence? Why? I'm coming from the place of this uh, statement. We do what we do because we think what we think. And we think what we think because we want what we want. Why do you do what you do? By the way, you do realize that everything you do has a thinking, wanting process behind it. Going home to watch the rest of the March Madness games today. I'm looking forward to that. 
And I can tell you my thinking about it and why I want to. <laughs> it's fun. Why eat lunch? Track it on back. Let me throw some options out here. Judas wanted personal gain, and so he did what he did to Jesus. Caiaphas and the council, they wanted to maintain power, so they did what they did. Pilate wanted to keep his job, so he did what he did. The crowd wanted to keep the whole present system in place, so they did what they did. Why did Jesus do what he did? What was he wanting that was driving his thinking to do what he did, i.e. silence? Why? That's where we're going. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Friends, I'm really amped up about this. I hope you get there. Colossians chapter 1. We need to see the big story. It's kind of the Genesis 1 of the New Testament. If we are to set our affections on the cross, then we need to understand what was going behind the eyes of Christ. What was he thinking? What was he wanting? What was the whole thing going on that would cause him to do what he did? Because if you and I are to do like Christ did, is it not true we need to be thinking and wanting like Christ? Does that not make sense? Does that make sense with me? Okay, I think it does. Okay, now... Why did Christ go to the cross? What is the cross all about? Here's typical response, and it's it's, it's true. Because Jesus came to pay the price for sin. And Isaiah 53 says that like a lamb going to slaughter in silence, Jesus was doing it. That's why. And that is exactly true. But it's not the whole picture. In fact, I might say it this way, while that is so true, it is also a bit myopic and myopic. It is a bit narrow in its understanding, and that's sometimes why we have the hard time of, we're to be thinking, our affections are to be set on the cross, that's why sometimes I think we have a hard time understanding what that means. Because it's more than Jesus coming to pay the price for sin. It's more than that. And to think only that is rather myopic. It's rather small in nature. And it's rather myopic because it's all about me and you. Let's take it bigger. And let me start with this way. There is a war that is going on. There is a war that is going on. And you and I are in the war zone. What am I talking with? Follow with me here a few passages. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Uh, When we had studied through this through a series uh, not too long ago. Uh, Here we go, verse 16. For by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things, how many things? All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's a lot of alls in that. 
And all of it is pointing to one individual, one second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Uh, you, you, You do understand that the Bible says that all of this earth stuff, heavens, and the things that we have yet to come to learn that are even out there, you do realize that the Bible says that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was the agency of the Trinity to create all things. That has a big impact because now when we go back and we think about Jesus going to the cross, we're not just thinking about some spiritual guy, some like uh, uh, cranked up philosopher, religious dude. We're, We're talking about second person of the Trinity created everything. I mean, everything visible, everything invisible. All the little nano atoms, I don't know what they're called, and I don't even care because I can't see them, and I have a hard time. I'm a physical functional. Give me some sheet metal and a hammer. Give me chemistry, I'm out. But know this, Jesus created both. All the little nano stuff, all the little microns, all, all you science people are just sitting there, you're a dork. Okay, <laughs> yep, yep. So all that Jesus created, all the planets, everything we're learning to discover, Jesus created all that. The, the, the mountains, the beaches, if you wish you were going or about to go, <laughs> uh, all of that, Jesus created all this. And not only did he create it all, but he owns it all. It was through him, by him, for him. All rulers, everything he's created. And he holds the whole world in his hands. That sounds like a song. We start at this place. He's the one. Is the agency through the Trinity that created all things. With that, go to Genesis chapter 1. By the way, at this moment, I'd like to make sure and use this to say in many ways what we are talking about right now is a significant and important setup for a revelation series coming after Easter. Okay, because um, study of Mark and the study of Revelation are not just moving from one book to some other book in the Bible, but it's really Jesus on earth ascends to heaven. Now what's going on? Okay, okay. And we are going to be learning about the heavens and what's going on. And it's all tied to the beginning as well here. So Genesis 1 verse 1, if you don't know the Bible very well, you probably, it sounds familiar to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created from Colossians 1. We know that that is the second person of the Trinity. Is the, the term is, was the agency of the one who God had in agreement. Christ created everything. He holds it. He owns it. He made it. So we know that's what's taking place here. So who are the players on the table here when you first open the Bible and read the first verse? Well, the Godhead is on the table. And then we see here the Godhead created, so there's been action in it. By the way, God loves matter because he created it. He's not anti-matter. Okay, He's not anti-things. He created it. And we see God created the action. He created the heavens. I would say, I'm I'm just going to kind of take it in its broadest term here. He created the heavens beyond the earth. And also, I think in this, he created the heavenlies. 
And we'll get later on when we talk about angelic stuff. And God created angels as well. I'm just going to kind of encompass all that in there. And it says, and the earth. So God created, uh, or there's the Godhead who created the heavens, the earth. And on the earth, you read the rest of chapter 1, you find out there's light and there's land and there's sea and there's animals and uh, all these really cool things. And then there's another thing that God created called mankind, uh, specifically Adam and Eve. And in the text of it, we find out as you read through it, that you find out on all of God's creation, there is something uniquely special about mankind. They're created in a way that is unlike anything else on all, in all of his creation. They're created in the image of God. I'll put it this way as we talk. Mankind is the Lord's centerpiece of creation. Okay, that doesn't mean like, sure is, look at me. <laughs> okay, we don't take it that way. Just in the fullness of it, God created mankind in all the creation, and, the, and mankind is the creation's centerpiece. Now go to chapter 3 of Genesis. We see there. In verses 1 through 6, a serpent, verse 1. Oh, now there's another character on the scene. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And Eve talks back and then they go on and what happens? They sin. Here's my question. Let me make a statement first. We don't have time to go talk about the whole fall of angels and demons and all that. But we're at this place now where there is a fallen there's a serpent. Satan is all about destroying the handiwork and the glory of God. Okay? Agreed? Satan is all about that. And here we find him on the earth in Eden. Do you understand? Satan is creeping around in the garden of Eden. And I would think if Satan wanted to, because Satan's job, Satan's deal, Satan's heart issue is he wants to destroy the Godhead. So in it, if the Godhead through the agency of Christ creates all this stuff, wouldn't you want to mess with it? Like go over to all the trees and pluck all the leaves off and just irritate God? You're not with me. <laughs> if you were Satan, would you want to go around and just do anything to clutter up God's creation? Go to the mountains and just like, Dump trash. Or like go into the ocean and somehow mess it up. Or like I said, go to the trees, pull all the leaves off so it looks dead, and go neener, neener. Doesn't that irritate you? Or why doesn't Satan go to the animals and mess with the animals to irritate God? Where is Satan going? Satan is going at God's very centerpiece. Satan is going at the one thing that was created in the image of God. And he's going right there. He's going to the heart of how do you want to irritate God? Mess with the centerpiece of his creation. And that's what he's doing. Pretty smart. Pretty bold. Pretty stupid. But that's what Satan is. And so he goes here, and then, okay, sin takes place, and it's like, victory, victory. And then God comes along, oh, we don't have time to talk about all the details of verse 14, chapter 3. Who does God speak to first? Who? 
the serpent, he speaks to Satan. Isn't that interesting? Satan will even has to sit. What would be the word? Has to sit at attention while God speaks to him. And God speaks to him because you have done this, you are cursed. <laughs> Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Look at this. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. I just don't have time in this, but let me sum it this way. God is saying to Satan, listen, you are going to lay out a bruise, but it's not going to be lethal. But one is coming. One, a man, a male from a woman is coming who will deal a lethal blow to you. And that's what's happening here. I wonder who that is. Could it have been Noah? I don't know, maybe Abraham or Moses or Samuel or Joshua or David or Isaiah? Who would be the one that would come and deliver a lethal blow to Satan? Turn to John chapter 1. I wonder who that could be. Who would be the one that would be able to do that? John chapter 1 verse 29. You can just hear like the drums of the angels. Just like. It's building. It's building. It's building. And I love this. Hang with me here. See if I can hang with you. And John saw Jesus and he saw Jesus coming toward him and John said behold the Lamb of God it was a year ago we went we traced the Lamb of God from beginning to the end and here it's like behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that's the lethal blow one he's put his foot on earth he's stepping up to the plate why? to deal with sin but hear me but to also deal with Satan. The cross is not just about you and I and the Godhead. The cross is also about a kingdom of God at war with the kingdom of Satan. And we are in the war zone. And we are like these God-image-created things... (laughs) Created for the glory of God that this slithering dog messed up for us. But know this, we didn't start the problem, he did. He started the problem and we can't correct the problem. But the lamb can. Why was Jesus silent? Why was he just so? It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you do to me. I am going to the cross. Why? Because he is delivering the lethal blow. And not just the lethal blow to provide for sin to be forgiven and redemption to happen with us with the Lord... But we need to get 
off of myopic and myopic and understand that his blow is not just for us. His blow is to take him out. And friends, this is what Revelation is all about. This isn't just about a timeline. This is about the kingdom of God going to war with the kingdom of Satan. And by the way, we're in the war zone. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. I'm not even going to read it. I just want you there. (laughs) Aren't you like, boy, that was irritating. You look in Revelation chapter 1, and had he not gone to the cross, that would not be there. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. I will read a bit of that. John is talking about, verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Hey, if Christ had not gone to the cross, there would be no one to open the seals. And by the way, in the rest of chapter 5, it talks about in verse 6, a lamb. The elders saw a lamb standing who, as though he had been slain. That's the one. That's my Savior. And if you know Christ, I'm telling you, walk out of here encouraged and hopeful. That's our Savior. None of this British, wimpy, walking, hippie dude in sandals. That's our Savior. Turn to Revelation 19. The rider on a horse. We'll get there sometime this year. (laughs) I literally, I don't have it laid out. We're just going to go. Here's the point. There would be no one riding the horse. At the end of Revelation 19. There would be no one riding the horse had the lethal blow not been dealt. Look at Revelation 21. There would be no mankind dwelling with Godhead forever if it were not for the lethal blow. That's why. When we set our affections on the cross, that's why. When we increasingly grasp what the cross is all about, it's not about two sticks and a person hanging only. It's about Genesis 3.15 to the end of the story. This is the moment. And that's my Savior. And that's the Redeemer. And that's the lethal blow. And friends, I'm bringing this to the table and I stop short of us going to the crucifixion because I want us to understand what is behind our Savior's eyes. All of this. He knows all of this. 
And this was not just about going to the cross for you and I. This is about dealing a lethal blow against Satan for all eternity. He will be taken care of because he was silently going to the cross. There was so much more behind this. And I ask this. If we are to be like Christ... And if we are to set our affections on the cross, I would say we should be setting our affections in the way that Christ set his affection. Not that we can deal the lethal blow. But he did what he did because he was thinking what he was thinking. And he was thinking what he was thinking because he wanted what he wanted. And he wanted Satan done. And he wanted to, to, to have... The centerpiece of his creation. Mankind. With him. In the eternal heaven. Forever. He had to go. And it didn't matter what Pilate did. Didn't matter what Caiaphas did. Didn't matter what the crowd did. It didn't matter what Judas did. It didn't matter about Barabbas. It didn't matter ultimately about any of them. He was going to the cross regardless for this reason. And I ask, what's driving you? Let's be frank. We get far too myopic and neopic in our thinking in life. Life is about me. Life is about what I want. Life is about what I think should happen. Life is about what I think people should do. Jesus was thinking way bigger. We need to get off of me and my and get on to him. So here's what I'm asking, church, for these next two weeks. I'm asking that you as families, you as individuals, I would ask that we seek to make these next two weeks of time here at this season that, that, that we would pursue as though we're on holy ground right now. He's going to the cross next Sunday, at least in our study. And he's going to rise from the dead the Sunday after. And if that did not happen, if that lethal blow had not been laid, we would be doomed. Let's put this thinking behind our thinking. Let's want to honor the Lord, glorify his name, and irritate him. You know what I mean? And we would irritate the kingdom of Satan by loving the Lord, Job chapter 1. Another Sunday. Lord, I'm just going to leave it here right now. I would just pray, Father, that this would have been a moment for all of us just to kind of step back and and grab a hold of a bigger picture of what's happening right now. A bigger picture of even what's happening in Mark 15 in those first 20 verses. Why was Jesus so silent? 
At any moment in time, he could have fried anyone that he had created. He could have stopped it. He could have called down an army to deal with it. But the fact is, is that he knew he was in a war zone. And he was in a war. And the way to win the war, the only way to win the war was to go to the cross. And so it didn't matter who said what, who did what, how much ruckus was going on. That's where he was going. Because the war needed a conqueror. And so he went. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And Father, I would ask that you would help us just even this week, even right now, to, 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 to grab a hold of this broader perspective of here we are on earth and at this point in time in redemptive history, we are in a war zone. Bad things happen in war zones. That's why bad things happen now. Father, some of us may have been living like we're on vacation. But at the very heart of it all, we are at war. And we are in the war zone. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here in this room today that doesn't know if they know you, the conquering king, that you would just stir their heart. There is one who conquers sin. But they have to make a choice. And making no choice is a choice. Father, I would pray that they would choose Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Lord, for all the rest of us, I would pray that we would live like Jesus Christ as our Savior. You're in this war zone. Thank you for being our Savior with that kind of a lethal blow, that kind of love, that kind of awesomeness. That's who you are, and you are the King, and we worship you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.